You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has Yahweh indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And Yahweh heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half-eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to Yahweh, O God, please heal her, please. But Yahweh said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 628 of this podcast. That was a reading of Numbers chapter 12, and it's not a long chapter, as you can tell, but... We'll go ahead and get right into unpacking it and thinking about it. And you know, just to be very, very clear, the big idea with this podcast is not to fill all our heads with the thoughts of Garrett. That's not the big idea. And the big idea is not to present myself as an expert in all things. I have a perspective I come by it honestly. I have a certain context. I have a certain background. I was brought up in a certain way. I was homeschooled from little on up. I've got a big extended family that on my dad's side was coming from Mennonite stock when my dad and his siblings, his eight siblings, were kids. They were raised Mennonite, and that affects my perspective The fact that all but one of my aunts and uncles left the Mennonite church and went either reformed or non-denominational, that affects my perspective. 
The fact that I've moved around the country several times, that affects my perspective. The fact that my wife and I have eight kids and we're expecting our ninth in November, praise God, that affects my perspective. And so I come to Numbers chapter 12, and I just want to be very, very clear. I am not trying to put myself forward in a vainglorious way. In fact, I know that there are a lot of other people you could be listening to for commentary, for a perspective on current events. There's plenty of wisdom in the conservative commentary space when it comes to podcasting. There are academic types. There are folks who have been very successful in business. There are people who are very expert on the political science. There are people who understand the inside baseball in Washington, D.C., or who are trained journalists you can listen to. There are trained historians and philosophers and theologians and pastors and lots of people you can listen to. And you're here right now. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, you're here right now and you're listening to me wax eloquent. And hopefully it's not just me waxing eloquent. It's not just me being in love with the sound of my own voice. And it is not me saying I have all the answers. I know the answer to all mysteries. But what I hope to convey is that you don't have to be an expert in order to dig into God's word and to read it and to study it and to ponder it and to contemplate it and to try and apply it to your life and to apply it as a lens, so to speak, for the things that are happening in the world around you. There are experts in many fields these days, and we're told to trust the experts, but such as it is, sometimes you need to not trust the experts. Sometimes it would be you missing out on personal growth for you just to defer passively to somebody else doing the research, somebody else doing the study, and you come to me and you say, well, then maybe I should just turn off your podcast and I'll go read for myself. And I say, fine, if that's a better use of your time, please do that. If you having just silence and being comfortable with silence for a little bit is what would benefit you and your walk with the Lord more, then by all means do that. I won't be offended. I won't know, I suppose. But if I do come to find out because you tell me, you know, I was listening to your podcast the other day and I just realized there's a lot of sound, there's a lot of noise and I needed to turn your podcast off or I was listening. I've heard this from a few people. I used to listen to your podcast quite frequently and now I only catch it every now and then. And I say, that's fine. If it was helpful to you for a little while and then it served its purpose and now you've moved on to other things, that's fine. That's totally fine. My role is not to make all of those individual decisions for you, and it's not to tell you what to think, but I hope that I am, by thinking out loud, helping you to refine your thinking and helping you to feel encouraged to think deeply and broadly without having to be an expert, without having to have some advanced degree from a prestigious university, without having to have some big fancy title from some well-respected institution. I hope that you are encouraged in listening to this podcast when we delve into a passage like Numbers chapter 12, for instance. For example, here we've got Miriam 
and Aaron opposing Moses. And again, as we talked about in our last episode, it's a bigger deal to God when we grumble and complain and murmur than we would expect. We have today a very consumer-oriented culture, or at least it has been for most of my life, a very advertisement-driven, you're the boss, the customer's always right type of culture here in America. And what comes with that in the internet age? You watch a movie, you listen to some music, you read a book, you buy a product and you go on Amazon or some other place and you leave a review and you say, I either loved it or I hated it. And the company or the person or the institution that put out that product or that media will take a look at the reviews. And if they want to be successful, they will refine and adjust and go back to the drawing board on a few things, they will take your feedback into consideration. And if your feedback is really positive, their competitors will also say, hmm, interesting. Yeah, maybe we should do something similar to that. That looks like it's what people want these days. But what comes along with that being so common in our time where we have so many choices, we have so many options What comes along with it is that we grumble and complain like it's breathing. And there can be a very consumer-oriented mindset towards the Christian faith where we are approaching the biblical text, for instance, and we're saying, hmm, yeah, I give this one four out of five stars, or I give this one two out of five stars. I don't like this passage. Or we can come to a bit of teaching. Let's say you go to church on a Sunday morning and the sermon is being delivered and you're sitting in the congregation in pews or chairs or what have you. And you can come away from that thinking about yourself, about whether your needs were met, as you might say, or whether you thought that was a a good sermon, or you thought the praise and worship band did a good job, right? You can, even if not formally, not going on Yelp or something like that and leaving a bad review for a church, hopefully those don't exist, but they probably do. If not formally doing that thing, you can informally do it just in your conversation because the attitude carries through. Even if there isn't necessarily the same application of the attitude per se, the same expression of it, if at the heart level we're thinking that this needs to please us, then we have it backwards. Ultimately, if we are God's people, if we're following the Lord, our prayer is not our will, but yours be done. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount is he says, We should pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And maybe, just maybe, when we say amen, God will answer the prayer and he will help us with our affections to order them, to organize them, to prioritize them so that we really do want what God wants. 
And in that case, it's okay to want what you're praying and asking God for. But we need to understand the amen at the end means so be it or let it be or as you will, God. If we're talking to God, then we're saying, here's what I want. Here's what I hope. Here's what I'm asking. But do what you want, God. Your will is perfect. Your will is good. And we agree with that. But here in Numbers chapter 12, we see this play out in a very personal situation that's high stakes and dramatic between three siblings. Miriam and Aaron are brother and sister to Moses, and they're grumbling about Moses because of the Cushite woman. And there's so much that is not explained or elaborated on in just this first verse. Why is his having married a Cushite woman, for instance, the catalyst for this grumbling? Is this a pent-up frustration, pent-up irritation, pent-up resentment? Possibly. Who does Moses think he is? He thinks he's so special. Well, actually, as a matter of fact, according to the passage, (laughs) Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And so God actually intervenes on Moses' behalf because, more to the point, this is not a grumbling and complaining against Moses, first and foremost. It's a grumbling and a complaining against God. God has chosen Moses to lead this people, Israel. It's as simple as that. It's just like when the people grumble about this or that, like, why don't we have the variety of foods that we had in Egypt, where food was plentiful and inexpensive? Why don't we have anything to eat except for manna? They're not grumbling against the Lord's servant. They're grumbling against the Lord himself. They're finding fault with him. In essence, they're disputing whether God is good. Now, there's a difference that is easy to miss sometimes, But there's a difference between accusing God on the one hand and saying, you're not good, and I'm going to carry on and act and speak like you're not good. And on the other hand, asking God sincerely for an explanation. Job, for instance, it says, didn't sin in anything that he said, but he asked a lot of questions. He asked God over and over again why he was even born alive if this was going to be how things went for him. He wanted to understand the reason why this was happening. Now, that's not necessarily to say that he was finding fault with God, but it is to say he was confused, hurt, and hoping for some closure, I suppose. He was hoping for his suffering to be purposeful. I believe. And maybe, just maybe, even though he was arguing with his friends, I haven't done anything. I haven't sinned secretly. Maybe, despite his protestation to them, he was hoping that God would 
make clear if there was some accidental sin, some hidden sin that he didn't realize he had committed. Nevertheless, the response of God towards Job is very different than the response of God towards Miriam and Aaron. And that's because even though Job was questioning God directly, he wasn't implying that God wasn't good or that God wasn't fair or that God wasn't just. And even though Miriam and Aaron are not questioning God directly, nevertheless, God knows their heart and he knows that what's at root here is that they're finding fault with God himself. They know better. You know, it's one thing if it comes out of the blue. If there's a conversation between God and Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And we know nothing about it. We're not privy at all to that. That's a time maybe to ask God some questions. Lord, I don't understand. Please help me to understand or give me peace at least in this trying circumstance. But Miriam and Aaron know better and they're being deceitful. And maybe it really is this Cushite woman, whoever she is, some say that the Cushite woman is Zipporah, who is named elsewhere. Others suggest that this is an additional wife that Moses has taken. So it's entirely possible that he has multiple wives, that he is a polygamist, which was not uncommon in that time, in that part of the world. It was not uncommon in the Old Testament. Whoever she is, Miriam and Aaron have some kind of a beef, some kind of an objection with her. And so then other things start coming out. What does the Cushite woman have to do with whether God has spoken through Miriam and Aaron? It seems like a total non sequitur, unless the common denominator is that they think they're better than Moses. They think themselves superior for some reason or for some several reasons. Maybe it's because he was raised in Pharaoh's household because he was taken in by the Pharaoh's daughter. That could be a part of it. They resent that he grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. And now look at him, right? He committed a murder and went into exile and comes back. And all of a sudden it's, I am that I am sent me. What's that about? You know, all of it is totally irrelevant to the really important thing, which is that God has chosen Moses and God himself speaks to Miriam and Aaron and puts them on notice and says, I speak to him mouth to mouth, not in riddles. So think also New Testament, Jesus teaching in parables. Here's God saying, I don't speak in riddles to Moses. I tell him plainly and directly. And that's a really remarkable statement. It's a really, really remarkable statement. I don't fully understand what's behind that, except that there's something qualitatively different in the faith of Moses that he is willing to believe God when God speaks directly, whereas there's something qualitatively wanting, perhaps, with those others 
that God's Spirit allows to prophesy. Something about the riddles and the parables is common to certain aspects of God's will being hidden and others being revealed only if you pursue, if you actively seek out the meaning. But then you've got God striking Miriam with leprosy. And why Miriam? Why Miriam and not Aaron as well? Maybe because Aaron is supposed to still fulfill his priestly duties. That could be, that's a possibility. Maybe it's just not necessary to strike Aaron as well directly because Miriam having leprosy will get Aaron's attention well enough. God doesn't have to make Aaron leprous as well. It's sufficient to get the job done for the corrective. But, you know, it it occurs to me how common this is, how typical this is. This is a very real human story. These are real people having a real drama, having real sibling rivalry, it would seem to me. This is real ambition, real vanity, real conceit, real jealousy. Miriam and Aaron are jealous of the attention that Moses gets, and they're jealous of the authority that he has, and they're jealous of the respect he garners. And so what are they doing behind the scenes? Talking amongst themselves, grumbling privately. And on the one hand, I would say God's dealing with it before it becomes this public thing. But actually, (laughs) it would appear that it's a private thing that only is becoming public by God confronting it. So it's a private thing, but it would be a public thing if uninterrupted. And God is jealous for his own glory and for his own purposes. And again, this is a question of his goodness, his wisdom, his justice, his righteousness being disputed. So he confronts it. And we're reading about it, and we're still talking about it thousands of years later. So God is actually the one who makes this very, very public. They were just murmuring behind the scenes, and God makes it very, very apparent, very noticeable. But not to promote it, not to incentivize this, not to say, oh yeah, let's have drama for drama's sake. No, no. This is disciplinary. This is corrective for us as well. If we're carrying on like this with people who are in positions of authority that God has put in positions of authority in our life, we need to take care. It's actually a very uncomfortable thought that if God has blessed somebody else in our circle with ability or material blessings or authority or position or what have you, whatever it is that he's blessed them with, we could find ourselves grumbling privately and then being embarrassed and disciplined by God very publicly. That's not a place I want to be. That's not a place you want to be. But one last thought on this passage here in Numbers. Moses' prayer to God is so short and it's so sweet and it's so simple. It's not formal. It's not affected. It's not pretentious. It's not any of the things that we would think of if we have this view of the Old Testament as being totally other. Moses is a real person. 
And he does care about his brother and his sister. And it might pain him that they were grumbling against him. But if he was the meekest man on the face of the earth, then he wasn't going to confront them necessarily. But then this being the penalty for Miriam, he's not clapping his hands. He's not happy that this is happening. Ah, yeah. Glad God showed her. Let that be a lesson to all the rest of y'all. No, no. His prayer is very simply in verse 13. Oh God, please heal her. Please. What a remarkable, remarkable plea for mercy. It's just amazing, actually. And then you've got God coming back and saying, seven days. She's going to do her time seven days outside the camp because this is symbolic. This is important. This needs to be settled. And again, it's not first and foremost Moses that they've been grumbling against. It's first and foremost God they've been grumbling against. So God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will answer the prayer of Moses here, but he will also follow through with the discipline and the correction for his name's sake, and also for the sake of his people, Israel. Remarkable, remarkable stuff here in Numbers chapter 12. But let's talk about a current event item. What is New York's famous Manhattan Hinge? Ashley Williams, staff writer for AccuWeather, reports May 26th. This urban phenomenon takes place only four times each year, and this Memorial Day is the first chance to catch this breathtaking NYC event in 2023. So if you're in New York City, maybe you caught it this morning. Maybe not. Today is Memorial Day after all. But it's an odd story to me because of how much Neil deGrasse Tyson is featured. You may be familiar with the name. He is a scientist, but also frequently shows up as the host of various TV shows and documentaries. He's frequently interviewed. He's frequently somebody who is brought on to comment on science news, similar to a Bill Nye the Science Guy type, but he is very much a proponent of the so-called settled science. Whatever the scientific consensus is, that's what he's for, and he is the spokesperson. He's like the marketing guy. He's like the PR guy for the so-called settled science. Personally, I don't care for him. I think he is full of hot air. It's not to say he's a dumb guy. It's not to say he doesn't have any kind of scientific knowledge, but his primary skill set is that he speaks well on camera. He is primarily, first and foremost, like (laughs) Bill Nye, the science guy. He is primarily, first and foremost, put front and center because he is an effective spokesperson for the people who want the certain narrative that's being promoted and propagated to be what the common person thinks is science. He is the guy who's put out there so that we don't get lured away into these side debates, like, for instance, questioning the efficacy and safety of COVID vaccines or mask mandates or lockdowns, or so that we don't start questioning evolution as a theory for how all life on planet Earth came to be or how the universe 
came into existence through the Big Bang. You're not supposed to question those things. You're supposed to believe them. That's part of the secular state religion in our day. And here's Neil deGrasse Tyson making an appearance once again to talk about what is New York's famous Manhattan Hinge. I'll play briefly, cut one here of him being interviewed so you can get a little bit of a flavor if you're not familiar. Here it is, cut one, take a listen. I'm delighted that that people have embraced a cosmic event as an annual ritual in New York City because New Yorkers really have no relationship with the night sky. We have relations with each other, with buildings, with, you know. I, so I'm delighted uh, to offer this to the city. And there's nothing that brings people together more than sharing something that's happening in the sky. Something that's rare in New York because we live in canyons, really. So a really good Manhattan Henge might be a few years in the coming. But just be ready for them when, when they happen. There's so many factors that can make this not work that I came to appreciate that, in fact, the, the sheer singularity and majesty of what we have here in Manhattan Henge may be unique in the world. <laughs> Did you catch all that science? That was super sciencey, super, super duper sciencey. Why did that need to be Neil deGrasse Tyson telling us those things? There really wasn't a lot of substance, but because you can put his name with the title astrophysicist under it, we're supposed to ascribe a certain mystical, religious, reverential awe quality, not just to the sun breaking through the skyscrapers down these New York City streets, but to science itself, right? Science is going to come in and explain and give meaning and purpose to this phenomenon, which you don't need an astrophysicist to explain to you. And more to the point, I think I personally, if I were in New York City this morning for the sunrise, would have enjoyed much more and appropriately without the input of Neil deGrasse Tyson. We don't need science to give purpose and belonging to the ordered universe that God created. What we need is to understand that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. That's what gives meaning and purpose to seeing a beautiful sunrise or seeing a beautiful sunset over the mountains or down city streets. And if we were all more acquainted with the Christian philosophy of science and how we wouldn't have modern science as we know it, with all of its developments, with all of its method, with all of its expectation of order, because God is a God of order, without Christianity, that's what you get is a lot of nonsense in a white lab coat. And it can't be sustained and it can't be maintained, but they will keep on trotting out Neil deGrasse Tyson. I guarantee it because he is supporting a metaphysical perspective that the powers that be in industry, in politics, in the media, by and large, ascribe to. It makes everything else possible that they want to aspire to because actually along very similar lines, along very similar lines to Miriam and Aaron grumbling against Moses, they're filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. 
And their primary complaint when they mock Christians for trying to do science as well or explain these things, when the atheists and the secularists mock Christians, they're not first and foremost finding fault with us, like we can't do science any more than Miriam and Aaron were first and foremost grumbling against Moses. Their beef is with Christ himself. And we don't need to be anxious. We don't need to be concerned for our own sake. God's got this. He will get representation. He will justify himself. Not that he has to, but he will prove himself to be correct in his good timing. In other news, speaking of science, I talked a few episodes ago about fossils and a certain article that I found also at AccuWeather about a saber-toothed tiger-like creature that they had found some fossils of that revealed just how hard life was for mammals during the so-called Great Dying, which, again, as a young Earth creationist who believes that the Genesis account of a flood in Noah's day really did happen. It's not just a metaphor. It really did happen. As a Christian who holds to a young earth creationist view, I look at all this talk of the great dying and I'm not distracted by the smoke and mirrors about greenhouse gases being released by several Eurasian supervolcanoes erupting, supposedly, scientists theorize. I look at this great dying, as they're calling it, and I see evidence for a global flood. I see evidence that the Genesis account can be taken as literally true, as we would say. These things really did happen. Not just in imagination, not just as we were trying to explain complicated concepts to primitive man who didn't understand natural phenomenon. No, no, this is God who understands perfectly. And he's not speaking in riddles here, even though he might be leaving quite a lot for us to figure out along the way, or he'll make it known to us. Like Paul writes in Corinthians, we know in part, we prophesy in part, we will know fully, even as we are fully known. We see now through a glass dimly. God allows us to know in part now how it is that the heavens and the earth came to be and everything in them came to be by his word, by his command, on his authority. God also lets us know that there was a global flood. There was a man named Noah. Noah is not just a type. He's not just a projection of some type of personality or psychological place that we might be in as we're relating to God or trying to understand God. No, no. He was a real man with a real family and God had him build a real ark to save him and his family and two of every other kind of animal from a real flood. But we come to this question of fossils again and briefly, there's a page over at lumenlearning.com in a course on earth science, a page specifically for fossils that talks through how it is that fossils are formed. And if you'll remember a few episodes ago when we were talking about the saber-toothed type creature that they have found some fossils of, I pointed out that the write-up at AccuWeather had misspoke, calling them bones. 
They're not technically bones. They're fossils. Fossils are not the same thing as bones. But I ask the question, how do fossils form? And here is from this course at Lumen Learning an explanation. How fossils form. A fossil is any remains or trace of an ancient organism. Fossils include body fossils left behind when the soft parts have decayed away, as well as trace fossils, such as burrows, tracks, or fossilized waste. Feces, you might call it. The process of a once-living organism becoming a fossil is called fossilization. Fossilization is a very rare process. Now get that, right? Get that. It's a very rare process. Of all the organisms that have lived on Earth, only a tiny percentage of them ever became fossils. To see why, imagine an antelope that dies on the African plain. Most of its body is quickly eaten by scavengers, and the remaining flesh is soon eaten by insects and bacteria, leaving behind only scattered bones. As the years go by, the bones are scattered and fragmented into small pieces, eventually turning into dust and returning their nutrients to the soil. It would be rare for any of the antelope's remains to actually be preserved as a fossil. On the ocean floor, a similar process occurs when clams, oysters, and other shellfish die. The soft parts quickly decay, and the shells are scattered over the ocean floor. If the shells are in shallow water, wave action soon grinds them into sand-sized pieces. Even if they are not in shallow water, the shells are attacked by worms, sponges, and other animals. For animals that lack hard shells or bones, fossilization is even more rare. As a result, the fossil record contains many animals— with shells, bones, or other hard parts, and few soft-bodied organisms. There is virtually no fossil record of jellyfish, worms, or slugs. Insects, which are by far the most common land animals, are only rarely found in fossils. Because mammal teeth are much more resistant than other bones, a large portion of the mammal fossil record consists of teeth. This means the fossil record will show many organisms that had shells, bones, or other hard parts, and will almost always miss the many soft-bodied organisms that lived at the same time. So this is to say too, that when it comes to artists' renderings of what a fossilized creature looked like or may have looked like, they'll always say may have looked like, it is their imagination. They are speculating. It is not a fact. And just because they can produce highly artistic renderings, highly realistic or believable renderings, of what they think this creature might have looked like in terms of colors or patterns. It's just that. It's speculative. It's imagined. It's theoretical. They don't know these things. And don't get blinded by the shiny object just because there's a lot of money that is given in grants to scientific organizations that can create those illustrations or the statues or those models. That doesn't mean that they know better where we come from originally or how we got here or how those fossils got to where we found them. That's an important thing for us to remember as we think about the world around us and our place in it. Speaking of <laughs> uh, rapid burial <laughs> and uh, the potential for being picked apart, and not even the bones will be left. Target loses $10 billion in value in just 10 days. Report. 
by Virginia Kruta over at the Daily Wire. Retail giant Target has lost $10 billion in market capitalization in 10 days, largely due to the backlash over prominent LGBTQ plus pride displays, including transgender friendly clothing items for children. According to a report published Sunday by the New York Post, Target's stock price was hovering near $160.96 a share. However, viral videos showing tuck-friendly and binding bathing suits for trans-identifying kids, along with greeting cards celebrating queerness in a display clearly aimed at young children, led to calls for a boycott. Ten days later, the stock price had dropped to $138.93 per share. A drop of $22 per share amounts to a 14% decrease in value, which translates to a $10 billion loss for the Minnesota-based company. If I look at another report at the Daily Wire, this one by Amanda Prestigiacamo, Boycott Target Song racks up millions of views, takes off on iTunes. I won't play the full thing. I will put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can take a listen to the full thing yourself if you haven't already, but I will play a small selection for you just to give you a little bit of a flavor, maybe whet your appetite if you want to listen to the full thing. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. Yeah. Yeah. All shoppers, all yeah. shoppers. Yeah. Yeah. There's a cleanup yeah. on every aisle. Yeah. Yeah. Target yeah. is targeting yeah. the kids. Yeah. They put a target on my back, but they're targeting your kids. They don't even need to ask, cause you all know what it is. Yeah, that's why I keep a strap, and I'm always by my bears. This agenda gotta stop, and you know we gonna win when they target, target, yeah, they target and... And cut. <laughs> uh, it's pretty catchy, actually. You gotta hand it to these guys. I don't know what their backstory is. I've never heard of them before, but they are dropping some pretty fat beats here. And this is different. This is different than the soccer moms in the very suburban attire saying, we don't like this. And, you know, the straight lace types, these guys have face tattoos and I don't know what their background is, but I feel like they've probably been in prison. <laughs> just a guess, just hazarding a guess. Don't mean to be judgy. But when you've got the ire raised of the hip hop scene and gangster types, I, you know, I, this is building into something different than what we have seen, at least what I have seen in recent years. Every other boycott has typically been more of the straight laced church going folk. And not to say these guys don't go to church, not trying to suggest that, but I think they go to a different kind of a church than what I typically have attended. And I say the more the merrier on putting a stop to the promotion of homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, trying to put it in our faces. They've been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years now in earnest in the public square now they're openly, brazenly trying to indoctrinate our children when we go shopping. If you take your kids to the store, do you want to take them to Target? I don't want to take my kids to Target and have this become something that is normalized in their minds. And now I'm already active in countering that. 
otherwise, but I also just don't want to go into a store where this is being juxtaposed just myself. I don't want to spend money at Target. It's not even first and foremost that I want to make a big statement here, but it's that I don't want to participate in doing what is evil. I'll refer you back to some comments that Matt Frad from Pints with Aquinas made, where he said, this isn't about trying to destroy some company. This isn't about being malicious. This is actually about trying not to participate in evil. We don't want to participate in evil. We don't want to contribute and give you our dollars. If we can put our money somewhere else and that actually rewards somebody else who's got more virtue or more restraint or more sense than to do this sort of a thing, well, then let's see those companies succeed and maybe it'll be a corrective, right? Maybe it'll be seven days outside the camp for some of these corporations, some of these professionals, seven days outside the camp. Because again, once again, as with the story in Numbers 12, the beef to do with traditional sexuality and gender is really not at all about tradition at root. It's about finding fault with God. It's about trying to do the same thing that got Satan and a third of the angels kicked out of heaven, aspiring to put their throne above that of the Most High. That couldn't be tolerated, and neither can this be, and neither do I want to even be standing anywhere close to the individuals who are perpetrating these sorts of things. I want to stand well back. I don't want to have anything whatsoever to do with this. And maybe if these folks are fortunate, they are able to course correct and they have a come to Jesus moment and they see the light. I hope, I hope that ends up being the case for many of them. Plenty will be absolutely stubborn and their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, as Paul writes in the New Testament, and their end is destruction. They're like brute beasts. They're unreasoning animals. They just follow their appetites wherever their appetites lead them. And I want nothing to do with that. I want to wash my hands of it by warning them very soberly, their beef is with God. Their beef is not with me and my opinions. I want to agree with God. As Abraham Lincoln once said, we should want to be on God's side because God is always right. Heading over to not to be, Daniel Plainview posted up a piece the day before yesterday, over the weekend, a UK government leader affirmed the scientific definition of male-female sex. Trans activists responded with 24 gallons of urine. Now, there is a video here. I'm not going to play the clip for you, but you can check it out. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Suffice to say that these activists collected 24 gallons of urine and then dumped said urine in front of London's Equality and Human Rights Commission office, supposedly in protest. Now, I think this goes a bit beyond protest. And certainly if this were conservative types, and by that I mean those who are pushing back on the radical gender theory agenda, the radical homosexual agenda, if these were conservative types pushing back, they would be labeled terrorists. These guys will be labeled activists. And 
Whether they're heroes or villains depends on who's writing the story and what their bend is. But this is to say, too, again, 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 the beef is not, first and foremost, with this UK official. Ultimately, the beef is with God. If this UK official is being super sciencey, in actual fact, the settled science is there's two genders, male and female, and it's been that way from the beginning. If he states that, where is our Neil deGrasse Tyson to tell us, yes, in fact, that is the science. I'll wait. I'll wait. Meanwhile, as we wait, another piece over at Not to Be by Commodore Vanderbilt. Here are the 25 most visited websites in the world in 2023. Ranked from 1 to 25, number one is Google.com with almost 84 billion monthly visits. Next is YouTube.com at 32.7 billion. Facebook at 16.8 billion, followed by Twitter at 6.4 billion, Instagram at 6.3 billion, Baidu.com at 4.7 billion, Wikipedia at 4.5 billion. All of these are websites that you would expect to be on the top 25. Further on down, you'll notice other recognizable names, Yahoo.com, TikTok, Amazon, WhatsApp, LinkedIn, Netflix, All of those are websites you would expect to be in the top 25, and they're all measured in the billions. But one thing I notice is we have in the number 10 and the number 12 spot two pornographic websites. And there may be others besides. I don't recognize others in the list here, but we have at least two in the top 12 of 25. And if you ask me, that is very unfortunate. And this is not healthy. It's not. Tell me this. Follow me for a moment. Before we get into why Americans have stopped having children, the Wall Street Journal article that will be our concluding piece for this episode, which would be better that you would have a whole bunch of men and women, increasingly, in recent years, looking at images and videos of sexual activity so as to excite themselves and feel as though they're having some kind of a sex life vicariously. Or, on the other hand, what Paul the Apostle writes in Corinthians. Again, Corinthians Those two epistles are really chock full of very useful, very helpful, very relevant stuff for our day and age. Corinth was very immoral and chaotic. But Paul writes in Corinthians that because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband, and they should render to one another their conjugal duties. That is to say, they should serve one another in the context of marriage sexually. And I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. My sons listen to this podcast, my daughter as well, and I'm not trying to make them uncomfortable at all, at all, at all, at all. But this is the reality, that God is not ignorant of these things. Also, there is no new thing under the sun. So just because there's a new medium for these messages 
or for these images or for these ideas. That doesn't mean that these ideas are new. It doesn't mean that sexual immorality is a new thing just because people have found a new way to be sexually immoral. But what does it even mean that we would say there is such a thing as sexual morality? What is morality in the context of sex? Now, we could say we're opposed to this and this and this and this. And if we spend the lion's share of our time talking about what we're opposed to with regards to sex, we will fall into a trap whereby those who are outside of the faith, those who are not believers, those who have an ax to grind against Christians will say, oh, Christians, they're no fun. They're just opposed to sex. They think it's dirty and awful and wrong. No, 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 no. On the contrary, on the contrary, sex is a beautiful gift from God. Gender is a beautiful gift from God that God made us, male and female, from the beginning is not a result of the fall. It's not a defect. Aristotle, ancient Greek philosopher, once said that women were merely inadequate men. That's not true. God made women, women. And God made men, men. And God made the woman to be a helpmeet suitable for her husband. And that isn't to say that every woman gets married. It isn't to say that every man gets married. Paul the apostle says, I wish me, speaking personally, he says, not from the Lord, but just me personally, I wish that more were as I am, that is unmarried, single, and content, viewing that as a gift because it is its own gift. But, he says, but, because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, every man should have his own wife, every woman should have her own husband. And this is not a straitjacket. This is not a jail cell. This is not banishment to some desert island. This is a beautiful gift from God. And we should study more than we do the words of Song of Songs or what it is that Adam says when he's first introduced to Eve. That sentiment we should want to carry with us always towards our spouse. I want to continually come back again and again to viewing my wife as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, as a great gift from God who made a helpmeet suitable for me. I want my wife to see me as a gift from God, really, truly. And it's appropriate. It's right for us to relate to one another in such a way as would be conducive to seeing one another as a gift from God. But all of that brings us to the meat and potatoes of this episode. Janet Adamy has published an essay in the Wall Street Journal as of May 26th, Why Americans Are Having Fewer Babies. The U.S. birth rate, she says, is down sharply from 15 years ago as women report that economic and social obstacles are causing them to have fewer children than they want. Now, this is really fascinating. Before we're even through the subtitle, this is quite the admission that women, <clears throat> women want to have more children. And might I just point out, this is part of where we have to think holistically as Christians, as we're giving advice to young people. And I don't believe for a moment that you should wait to give advice to your son or your daughter until they're 18, 19, 20 years old. And they've already found somebody, somebody's already caught their eye and they're well on their way to forming a deep emotional attachment. Hopefully not, but possibly even a physical attachment to that person. 
no, no, I want to talk with my kids on my father-son trip with them when they turn 13 about how we're praying for their future wife and how it's good for them to be thinking forward to how they would provide for a wife and children. I agree with the Apostle Paul who wrote, every man should have his own wife and every woman should have her own husband. I agree with that. If it turns out that any of Lauren's and my children don't get married, well then, so be it. Amen. Right? We conclude our prayer. Amen. As God wills. And he has a good purpose for that. But we're going to equip and advise, by God's grace, hopefully well, our children to be married in a way that honors the Lord and have children in a way that honors the Lord. And one of the most distressing things to me as a father, 36 years old, eight children, ninth on the way, all by the same woman, by the way, all (laughs) within the bounds of marriage or the context of marriage, I should say. One of the really distressing things to me is as I pay attention to my spending power relative, my wages going up year over year, and I see taxes and inflation eroding my ability to provide for my children. What distresses me and what keeps me up at night some nights is the thought that my children will see me having a harder and harder time putting food on the table, paying utilities, buying the necessities of life. They will see me having a harder and harder time and they will conclude that they don't want to get married ever. They don't want to have children ever. Now, to head that off at the pass, what I and my wife are doing is advising our children to develop skill sets that are going to allow them to make a good living and to learn how to manage their money well so that they have good habits where spending is concerned, where saving is concerned, where prioritization is concerned. We want them to be learning important frugality skills, how to repair something instead of just throwing it away and buying a new one, how to take care of and maintain things so that they don't break in the first place, hopefully, how to buy something that's going to be quality so you don't have it needing so much maintenance to keep it from breaking or so that you don't have it breaking in the first place that you would need to repair it or replace it. That gets to be more expensive over time if you're constantly having to replace things that are broken because they were cheap because you were trying to save money. We're trying to teach our kids those kinds of things. And what distresses me is that the ruling elites have such a different set of priorities, as is evident from Biden's recent announcement this year, that he was ordering a all-of-government approach to so-called environmental justice. Translation, we're going to make energy far more expensive. We're going to make transportation far more expensive. Therefore, we're going to make the cost of everything that is delivered via energy and transportation more expensive. Everything that is produced via energy and transported to you more expensive. I hear that and I say, the ruling elites do not see it as a priority that my children after me would be able to get married at a reasonably young age when they're at their most energetic and most plastic in terms of their brain development. And that is actually another argument for getting married younger. One more argument to make is if you're in your 20s, 
your brain is still able to adapt to the other person versus the longer you wait, the more set in your ways you are. And science actually shows this to be the case. This is part of why you want to learn languages when you're younger. This is part of why you want to learn any subject when you're younger. And what does the good book say? Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's older, he will not depart from it. And therefore, if you have people getting married older and older, later and later in life, they're already settled in to their habits and their routines and the way they like things. And so, yeah, it does get a lot more difficult to find the right person who's going to be complimentary versus being able to adjust and adapt to each other as you both are growing into your adulthood together, you and your wife in my case or husband in my wife's case. But look at this, even just the subtitle. I I have a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Apparently this is a subscriber only article, so I don't want to read too much of it. I want to be considerate of the Wall Street Journal having certain things behind a paywall, but even just the admission that birth rates have been plummeting for 15 years and that you can trace 15 years back to the financial crisis that started around 2008. Now, that was, interestingly enough, right when my wife and I were first trying to get our family off the ground. And so in many ways, I feel as though I'm a racehorse that was tripped on the way out the gate. The shot was fired, and here I am trying to provide for my family. And there were no choices that I could have made to prevent the 2008 financial crisis. Double-digit unemployment in places like where my wife and I lived, Southern Ohio. Circumstances that compelled us to, by God's grace— by his provision, moved to eastern Montana so I could get a job in the oil and gas industry. Thank God for the oil and gas industry, but there again, the elites, the Al Gore types, the John Kerry types, the Joe Biden types, they want to destroy my industry. The industry that allowed me to get off of public assistance in the first place and buy our first home. And now we're right back to not being able to afford a home again, which is very, very discouraging, very distressing for me as a husband, as a father, as a man. But these are policy decisions that reflect certain priorities and a certain view of the world and a certain anthropology. And yes, friends, a certain theology. Janet Adamy, I think, is an ironic person for her last name to write this, because what did God say to Adam and Eve? He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And what is Janet relaying to us in the Wall Street Journal? That more and more women want to have more children, but they don't feel as though they can afford it. This is where this gets to be a very real moral problem, and the church should be engaging it as such. It's a moral problem. It's an ethical problem that our government is promoting policies that make it difficult to impossible for young people to get married instead of fooling around. Instead of being sexually immoral, they want to get married, but they don't feel like they can afford it. They want to buy their own home and own their own home, their own space where they can leave and cleave, but they're priced out of the market. They want to have children, but there again, the cost of having a child. And if the wife and mother wants to stay home and raise that child and God forbid, but actually 
quite the contrary, homeschool that child in this environment, how are they going to afford it? These are things we have to appreciate as being a kind of stolen inheritance. I'm going to play a clip for you here briefly, and then we'll get right back to the Wall Street Journal article. But this clip was sent to me by my cousin Brent, who actually was the first one I talked with when I first got into the oil and gas industry or right before I made the decision to move back to my home state of Montana. He sent this to me this morning. Here it is. Cut three. Take a listen to this. I saw this clip. Uh, I want to play this clip for you. I saw this from Isabel Brown on Instagram. So we're doing a, 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 a picture at a picture video or a, 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 we're, we're reacting to a reaction, but I don't know the original video, but I'm going to play this for you. They don't know how to address an envelope. They don't know how to read cursive. She's talking about Gen Z. They don't know how to read a paper map. They can't get anywhere unless there's a GPS map on their phone. All I'm saying is if Gen Z takes over the world, it's going to be pretty easy to get it back. <laughs> We're just going to write our battle plans in cursive on a piece of paper. That, that actually is a true story. We talked about it before. Look at her face. Where, uh, <laughs> well, so there, there's that story where they did the war game and the younger guys lost to the older guys. And it's because yeah. like the older guys wrote, an, wrote their plans on a note and put it in a guy's pocket and wrote it by motorcycle. And they were trying to like intercept messages. People talk about it. They, they tell us the, the specifics. But uh, Isabel then goes on to mention that uh, you were supposed to teach us. Yeah. And right. that's the most brutal thing about it. That woman, she's telling a joke. It's fine. It's a joke. But the crazy thing is that she would joke about her own failures, a generational failure, and they all laugh. And I'm like, I get you're joking, but every joke has its truth. And you don't genuinely think you will take the world back from Gen Z. You, you do believe you're handing it off. But if you really believe that Gen Z is incompetent, incapable, and you're laughing about it, this is us being flushed down the drain. Tim Pool is exactly right. Exactly right. And I do recognize the gal too from the Instagram video. I think I shared recently uh, another video on her channel more directly without Tim Pool's commentary. It's funny to me because it's like Russian nesting dolls here. He is playing a clip of her reacting to this comedian and I'm playing a clip of Tim Pool reacting to her reacting to this comedian reacting to the dynamics between Gen Z. Anyways. Tell somebody you know so we can just keep this thing going. But this is exactly what I've been saying about the multi-generational dynamic that we've got going on right now. If you read Neil Howe and William Strauss and their books, The Fourth Turning, An American Prophecy, and also their book, their previous book, Generations, they're the ones who came up with the name for the millennial generation. These guys are demographers and they have a brilliant and very thought-provoking historical framework for looking at all of American history, and they see this repeating cycle. And I've talked about it before. You can go back and check out my book review episodes where I talked all about both of those books, Generations and The Fourth Turning. But suffice to say for this episode, I'll just refer back to those and move on. The comment from Tim Pool about this comedic sketch is spot on. He is 100% correct. This is not funny to me as a millennial. It's not funny to Gen Z. And I think Gen X <laughs> that precedes my generation 
is afraid to laugh because they were the most aborted generation in American history. Those that survived being aborted were treated like a bad generation. They were just a bad crop of kids. And the big question needs to be asked as Tim Pool and the gal whose video is being shared of the comedian and the reaction and all that, as we all recognize who are part of this younger generation, millennial Gen Z generation, it was the job of the older generations to train and equip us so that we would have the skills that we needed to be able to adult and to be able to function. And they go on. You can check out the full video. It's about 11 and a half minutes long. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode you're listening to. You can go check it out. In fact, I would encourage you to check out the longer discussion. They lay the blame squarely at the feet of the public schools, for one thing, and parents who just gave their kids over to the public schools for raising like it was the easy button. And this is why we homeschool. Go buy my book, by the way. (laughs) Buy lots of copies of my book so that I can afford to quit my job and write the rest of the series. And this is why we got married. And this is why we had children. And this is why we go to church. That's my, that's my dream is a hundred thousand people buy my book, a million people buy my book and are helped buy it. And I, in turn can just write and podcast for my day job moving forward. But in the meantime, I do have a day job and I work in oil and gas and I'm a controls programmer and I've got eight kids with a ninth on the way because damn the torpedoes. We're going to keep on being obedient to God. So long as my wife's health is okay. So long as we are not falling apart in terms of our internal dynamics as a family, we're going to keep on fulfilling this great commission and the dominion mandate because God never rescinded either of those. Both of those are still our mission. And some would say, well, it's just the great commission. That's all. And I say, where did God ever retract or call null and void the dominion mandate? He didn't. His original plan and purpose for that, I would say, will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth with the saints throughout all generations, those who believed in God throughout all generations, filling the earth and subduing it, exercising dominion over it, filling the earth with the image and likeness of God. But back to the Wall Street Journal piece. Janet Adamy writes, The gap between women's intended number of children and their actual family size has widened considerably. The researchers found that by the time Women born in the late 1980s were in their early 30s. They had given birth on average to about one child less than they had planned. That is roughly double the size of the shortfall for women born two decades earlier, and it is likely too large to be erased by a spurt of childbearing in their late 30s. Now let's go back one paragraph because we need a little bit more context, don't we? New evidence points to the latter explanation. In a study published in January in the journal Population and Development Review sociologists Karen Benjamin Goodso and Sarah R. Hayford found that when millennials born 1981 to 1996 and the oldest members of Generation Z starting in 97 were surveyed in their late teens and early 20s, they said on average that they wanted to have at least two children, just a fraction less 
than members of Gen X and the youngest baby boomers when they were surveyed at the same age. So when we read that (laughs) these women are on average having about one child less than they planned, that means they're having one instead of two. They wanted to have at least two kids, and most of them are having just one. And tell me how taxation and regulation and a centrally planned economy and radical redistribution of wealth is not a moral issue that Christians should be concerned about. This is of a piece with the push for homosexuality and transgenderism to be celebrated and affirmed and incentivized, more to the point, because the ruling class, go look it up, check out my episodes on John Taylor Gatto, the ruling class for a century has been pursuing the eugenics program through the public schools and through the university system. We only want the best in breed to reproduce, they said about a century ago. And the Nazi plan, the Nazi expression of eugenics was really dark and scary and ugly, and it got a backlash as it should have because it was evil. It was straight from the pit of hell. So what did they do instead? They said, well, we'll just pour all of our attentions into culture and social engineering through the public schools and through, I would say, TV programming, radio programming, now internet, social media programming. And I'm not trying to paint a conspiracy theory portrait for you here, but you need to understand that the very wealthiest, most powerful men in America and in the West more broadly have for quite some time denied the existence of God. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And alternatively, they have viewed themselves as the closest beings to God. And so they play God. And they view us, you and me, the regular folk, the common people, the teeming unwashed masses, they view us as so much livestock to manage. We're human resources, not people, not neighbors, not family, not countrymen, first and foremost. We're resources to be moved around on a chessboard or on a battle map or on a spreadsheet. We're not people to them. We're animals and we need to be managed like so many animals. And if it turns out that just like an invasive species in the Florida Everglades needs to be hunted down and removed if possible so that it doesn't upset the ecosystem, if they start talking and they have been in recent years, more and more openly, if they start talking about human beings as an invasive species, we need to put two and two together. Maybe, just maybe, here's the thought for you, maybe, just maybe, the majority of us in Gen Z and in the millennial generation weren't given so many of the skills that are necessary for being self-sufficient and independent because that is not the big idea. Because that would only, one, if we were very successful, upset the status quo, which is very profitable for the people at the very, very top. And two, if we're going to be failures anyways, and if we're just going to be animals anyways, we don't need to worry our pretty little heads over what's better left to the experts. So you see, when I start explaining it in these terms, you start to see how cruel and how ignorant it is for many of the older generation, the baby boomer generation, Gen X, to be mocking Gen Z and the millennials for not knowing what we weren't taught. It was their job to teach us. 
And oh, by the way, they were also products of this progressive model, this progressive system of public schooling, compulsory government schooling. And so tragically, they glory in their shame. And then what? If somebody says like I do, we're going to opt out of this rigged game where the house always wins. We're going to opt out. We're going to homeschool our kids. We're going to teach them at home. We're going to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're going to train them up in the way that they should go. What do we get? So many of us for so many years, not so much as it used to be now, but still, it's still there. What do we get? Oh, what qualifies you? (laughs) And I think a better question is, look at all that has disqualified the public education system, metric after metric after metric, including but not limited to declining birth rates. And young women who aspire to be mothers, as they should, they have a maternal instinct. God has put that in them. They want to be mothers. They want to be wives. And what are they told instead? Fool around. There's lots of fish in the sea. Have fun. Sow your wild oats. And you know what? Here's another piece. Uh, old friend of mine from high school, J.R. Butler, he's now a pilot, commercial pilot, and a trainer of pilots, actually. He commented, he said, you know how hard it is for a single guy about my age to find a single woman who doesn't already have children that were born out of wedlock? Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how many single guys don't want to get married to a gal who already has kids and raise somebody else's kids? And I think there's a lot of things I could say to that to be critical of it. But also, on the other hand, it's not for no reason that in the Old Testament and even in the New, a woman's virginity when she was married off was very, very important. Her husband wanted to know that he was the first and only man who had ever been with her. That was very important. And what of the public schools, what has pop culture incentivized, promoted, encouraged? Just the opposite. We make fun of people who are virgins when they get married in the mainstream. So here's what I think should happen. And I got to run because my four older boys and I, three teens and a preteen, and I are going to go and help a family from church move this morning. But here's what I think needs to happen. I think Gen X and the baby boomers need to take a good long look in the mirror and ask themselves the hard questions of how they are the cause of this current trouble, economically, diplomatically, socially, politically, demographically, culturally. And then the mocking us needs to stop and they need to repent. They need to apologize and they need to ask for forgiveness and they need to turn from their wicked ways. They need to stop selling out our future just to buy themselves a little bit more youthful vitality, a little bit more of a comfortable, fancy, ostentatious lifestyle. They need to stop cannibalizing the younger generation. They're not going to live forever. And my generation and the one that comes after me needs investment now, right now. Not a whole lot of throwing stones from glass houses. My generation and the one that comes after me needs a lot of investment right now. And if we don't get it, there will be nobody to protect these Gen Xers and these baby boomers from being euthanized 
by the Chinese Communist Party when the CCP formally takes over the United States of America. If you want to stop that from happening, there's a very simple way. Invest in millennials and Gen X and equip us to take over sooner rather than later because the baby boomers do not have it and Gen X is badly damaged. And that also is not first and foremost their fault. Now, what they do with it, that's on them, but it's not first and foremost their fault that they were the most aborted generation. But they have a major inferiority complex and they're just so desperate to please the baby boomer generation. Our standard of living generation over generation has decreased precipitously because of the folly, the passivity, the exploitation, and even, yes, in the worst cases, the abuse and murder perpetrated by the older generations. It's time to repent, and it's, a, it's time to go back to the drawing board as a people. Not little tweaks, not like this whole debt ceiling negotiation, what a farce between Kevin McCarthy, House Speaker, and Joe Biden, where the Democrats once again get everything they want because they manipulate and they bully and they cajole and they throw their tantrums, which is shameful for, it's shameful for people of their age to do. No, no, we need a total overhaul. We need to come to Jesus moment as a country. And if we could have that by God's grace, if God's Holy Spirit would move and bring genuine revival in this country, he would hear us when we pray. He would heal our land. He would forgive us our sins. He would enable us to forgive one another our trespasses. He would bless the lonely with families and with homes, those who are homeless. He would give a good future. That's entirely consistent with his character and who he is. But if we won't, if we won't repent, judgment is nigh. And even right now, it's coming fast. If it's not too late, it's close. But as I said, that's all the time I've got for this episode. Tell the righteous it will go well with them, but I got to run as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.